occasionally hear of unusual acts of courage. Sometimes we hear about it in society, individuals who come overcome some of the innate fear, sometimes fear of danger, sometimes physically, sometimes mentally, emotionally. Here's one reported by Paul Harvey. Many of you remember Paul Harvey. This is from the L.A. Times Syndicate. One summer morning as Ray Blankenship was preparing his breakfast, he gazed out the window and saw a small girl being swept along in a rain-flooded drainage ditch beside his Andover, Ohio home. Blankenship knew that farther downstream, the ditch disappeared with a roar underneath the road and then emptied into the main culvert. Ray danced out the door and raced along the ditch, trying to get ahead of the floundering child. Then he hurled himself into the deep, churning water. Blankenship surfaced and was able to grab the girl's arm. They tumbled end over end, and within about three feet of the yawning culvert, Ray's free hand felt something, possibly a rock, protruding from one bank. He clung desperately, but the tremendous force of the water tried to tear him and the child away. If I can just hang on until help comes, he thought, he had better than that, he did better than that, by the time the fire department rescuers arrived, Blankenship had pulled the little girl to safety. Both retreated for shock. On April 12, 1889, Ray Blankenship was awarded the Coast Guard Silver Life-Saving Medal. The award is fitting for the selfless person was at even greater risk to himself than most people knew. Ray Blankenship can't swim. Kind of an incredible act of courage. We think of different kinds of courage. That's one act of courage in the face of very great danger. Today I'd like to look at the subject of courage, something uh, we think about on occasion. Sometimes when we're faced with danger or major challenges in our life as well, courage that is essential and will be essential in a difficult years ahead of us as we understand, as we know prophecy. Courage that is also essential in developing the very character, the very character that God wants us to have. He simply, uh, that is, Blankenship reacted with courage, but we have a different kind of courage that God wants within all of us. Title of the sermon, to give it a title, An Act of Courage. The scriptures are filled with men and women who acted courageously at times, in times of danger, in times of trauma, in times of trouble, putting their lives on the line in many cases, to obey God rather than man, to obey God rather than man. We know Daniel who prayed to God daily in spite of the decree, as we'll remember, that no man could petition any God or any man except King Darius. At that moment in time, I believe for a period of 30 days as it was. And of course, Daniel showed unusual courage to continue that connection with the great God in the face of danger. Esther, for example, the young Jewish woman who risked her life at a point in time to come before the king to petition the king for the lives of her Jewish brethren their friends and relatives at that time. And we know Joseph as a young man. He possibly was late teens or maybe later 
early 20s, Joseph refused to participate in sexual immorality with Potiphar's wife, even though it landed him in prison. We, we know that took a level of dedication, a level of courage that God wants to see to a degree in every last one of us. We won't be tested exactly in the same way, but we are tested. Dr. Meredith's final Council of Elder meetings that uh, he that he administered or chaired November of 2016, he stated something that to me had a new emphasis that I hadn't thought of, hadn't heard him say at a point in time. We've always heard him say we need to pray for faith and something we need more of, rock-solid confidence in the great God and his purpose and, of course, his reality as well. But he suggested at that time that we be praying for faith and courage. He added another dimension there that I don't think I had heard him say before, but faith and courage. And it struck me at that time that this was on his mind. On his mind, of course, at the latter stages of his life. And he presented it, I think, as an imperative for all of us to be praying for courage, to do what's right in the face of challenge and danger that sometimes we have faced and will face in the future. In his final message in Tomorrow's World magazine, March, April 2017, Dr. Meredith's words, he wrote rather an article entitled, Build Faith and Courage. He emphasized courage again. And he said this, You must be willing to do what God says and have the faith and courage to obey him in the perilous years ahead. No matter what, the only way you can develop that faith and courage is through sincerely seeking God and having a profound relationship with him through his son, Jesus Christ. End of quote. You know, we often think of courage as extreme heroism, which we read about the individual that saved that young child. We think about firefighters rushing into burning buildings. We've had more of our share of that in, in California in recent days and weeks of firefighters on the line, you know, in facing danger, firestorms, fire tornadoes, and an amazing, let's say, uh, alignment of circumstances with the weather and dryness and humidity and strong wind. And they showed an element of courage in a physical way and in an emotional way as well. So they, these are rare acts of courage in extreme situations that are faced. But we also, I think even more importantly, we need courage every day of our life. And a different kind of courage, as it were. Courage can be thought of as a state of mind or a character trait, even of God himself. That enables us to face danger, difficulties, to do what's right when we know there may be a penalty at times or disapproval at times. Here's a definition from the dictionary, Merriam-Webster. Courage is mental or moral strength to, to venture, persevere, and withstand danger, withstand fear or difficulty, end of quote. We might say that courage is not the absence of fear, but it is the quality, a state of mind, a character that allows us to face 
and to defeat fear. Defeat sometimes challenges that we know there may be repercussions in various ways. And I'm sure all of us coming out of the world, you know, one way or another, had to show a certain level of courage. Think back to your time of coming into the truth and some of the things you faced. I think there were some of us, there were others who had to summon up the courage, I think back, to tell our extended family, as it were way back then, you know, siblings and parents and aunts and uncles, that we were leaving the church of our heritage. It had been part of our heritage for hundreds of years. And I think back, uh, I think personally, I didn't have a lot of courage, but sometimes you've it has to be summoned somehow. I think one of the things that I feared the most, it may sound kind of strange, but I feared the most was telling my father-in-law, early 20s, had only been married for uh, a couple of years, uh, facing my father-in-law, who was a senior elder in a congregation of about 500. We could say he was the presiding elder of that congregation at the time. And, and I, I really wasn't Fearful of his anger, but I was fearful of disappointing him. And that's, that's kind of at another emotional level. And that was something that I knew, my wife and I knew we had to face. And I'm sure we weren't full of courage as we could have been. But sometimes you have to do what you know is right, even though there may be repercussions. God's way of life consistently demands courage, an element of courage. There are times when we simply don't have the courage, at least it seems like, we don't have the courage to do what we feel, maybe know, that we should do. And I've been there. We, we, we're all tested, and we will be in the future. We know that. We will be tested. We know what's right, but we fear the consequences, whatever they may be, circumstances. For example... In Satan's world, there may be consequences of always telling the truth, sometimes with an employer. Some employers expect their employees to lie for them for the good of the company. I remember years ago, I had an uh, individual tell me, company-wise, it's okay to lie if it's for the other person's good or if it's for the company good. And as a young person later, uh, timing-wise in the church, I realized, you know, that's relative to his opinion, but it doesn't square with the great God's opinion. Sometimes there are consequences of always telling the truth. I think for a young person, maybe in high school or college, I think many have faced this, there may be consequences of keeping the holy days, especially the Feast of Tabernacles, being gone eight to ten days, the Feast of Tabernacles. Sometimes teachers are intolerant. You know, they know what they know, but they don't understand why you're, why you're being so obstinate, this crazy idea of observing a feast <laughs> to them, whatever that means to them at the time. And they're intolerant of your beliefs, and they need to be out of school. Believe it or not, out of school, school just started to college, and you want to take off eight or ten days, they may threaten you with lower grades. They may threaten you with a failing grade, depending on the instructor and the situation in college. Teens and young adults today need courage, and that's a given in this world, in this age. 
as their values are constantly under attack in the school system, in the college system, in the high school system. Values under attack among especially peers in the world, as we know, and later in a job market. Sometimes employers want you to conform, you know, to use the right pronouns, you know, more and more as it is. So we can appreciate, I think, so many of our young people, and I've seen this, I've noticed it, I've appreciated it, the vast majority of our young people who are showing such a high level of courage to do what's right, even though there may be consequences. Trusting God, no matter what comes, no matter what comes their way as a consequence. We know in the world people readily lie, they cheat, they steal to get ahead in Satan's world. And we know that can't be our agenda. It takes a level of courage to go against the current, stand up for what we know is right. Every last one of us needs godly courage throughout our life. And the years ahead of us, whatever come, whatever may be, we need a level of courage. There will be somewhat dangerous and uncertain times. Things get worse and worse in society. And humanly speaking, we all could use more courage, a character trait that God wants in all his people to do what's right no matter what the consequences are. We know the future. We know the blessings of the great God. We know his promises. And we know what God expects. We are tested. It's like God tested ancient Israel. So he will know what's in our heart and what's in our mind. So how do we acquire more courage? Realizing that we do need more. How do we acquire more courage in an evil and a dangerous time as it is? Courage to obey God. Courage to trust God fully, no matter what comes, no matter what looks like the consequences are. Well, I'd like to look at three strategies today. Three strategies to build courage, because we know that's something that doesn't come naturally as human beings. It's a character trait we must acquire, and God will help us in that process when we learn to trust the great God. So we're going to look at three character traits, three, let's just say three strategies, rather, to develop more courage that will be needed in the years to come. Number one. I'd like to say number one is to come to fear God far more than we fear the world or the consequences. Whatever the world can throw at us at a moment in time, it's only short term. The blessings that come from God are forever. We know that is the case, the promises of the great God. Look at Matthew chapter 10, Matthew 10 and verse 28. Christ mentioned this to us. I think it uh, is well put, Matthew 10 and verse 28. And Christ said to those then, but especially to us today, Matthew 10, verse 28, he said, And do not fear those who kill the body. That is the soma, the physical, living, breathing, physiological body but cannot kill the soul, suke, the potential for life. 
but rather fear him, the great God, who is able to destroy both soul, that is the potential for life, for even eternal life, and body, physical body that is in Gehenna or hell, as it's stated, or the grave. So Christ was saying, you know, the world can take our life at the very most, but they can't take our potential for life, for eternal life. It goes on and on and on out into the galaxies in Romans 8 and beyond. There have been rare times when people of God have been threatened with their lives. That doesn't happen generally. Fortunately, it's not happened often, but it does happen. In the very next few verses in Matthew 10 here, Christ reassures us that he is there with us and for us. In verse 29, he said, Are not two sparrows sold for a copper coin, and not one of them falls to the ground apart from your father's will? Verse 30, But the very hairs, the actual hairs of your head, are all numbered. He's saying, I don't know. I guess we don't know that God has a need to know, but he has the capacity to actually know how many hairs we have left. The, the number is decreasing, but he could keep track if he chose to. Verse 31, he said, Therefore, remembering the capacity of the great God and what he can do and keep track of every last one of us and the dangers and the fears, do therefore, do not fear therefore, you are of more value than sparrows. And Christ was saying, look, you know, God has that, that capacity to keep track of his creation. And think of how valuable potentially you are to the great God eventually entering his family. He's going to keep track. He's going to give you what you need. He's going to protect you in the way you need. God doesn't intervene every time and protect us from every stupid mistake we make. But he is there for us, and God is there guiding us. He knows what's best. He knows when to intervene and when not to intervene. He always does what's best, considering our growth, our future. As we know, we can also be reassured there's always a way of escape. There's, there's some way out, some way we can get through this, whatever it is, whatever this test or trial is, there's always a way out. That is, if we see God through, if we don't kind of like bail out or chicken out, if we stay with the great God doing what's right in the face of danger or tests or challenges, we need courage, don't we? 1 Corinthians 10, 13. 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 13. And we read in verse 13 where Christ says, no temptation, actually could be just as well translated trial. No temptation, no trial has overtaken you except such as is common to man. None of us are unique. None of us are going through things or will go through things that no one else has. But God is faithful, will not allow you to be tempted or tested Beyond what you are able, that is with God's help. He knows you better than you know you. He understands our frame. 
who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able, but with the temptation, with the test, with the trial, will also make a way of escape that you may be able to bear it, to handle it, to get through it, to successfully pass that test. You know, we're all taking tests. Life is one test after another for our good. I've often thought, if I wouldn't have had tests to take, maybe in high school and college, I probably wouldn't have read the textbook too much. I might have coasted. We need tests. We're taking tests in this life. We haven't graduated yet. We graduate. We graduate at Christ's return. We move on to our real career at that time. Well, the Greek word translated temptation here, or tempted, means more than lust. It's not just speaking about lust. According to Strong's, it can mean a trial, testing, being tried, temptation, calamity, or affliction. That covers a whole lot of threats. And Christ indicated uh, through Paul that God will see us through one way or another, sometimes removing it and sometimes allowing us to work through it, to develop the character we need, the decision-making that we need to be a part of God's family, to advise other human beings, kind of like been there, done that, in the millennium, in the future, sympathizing with their problems and their struggles. So Paul was saying that there's no trial, no temptation, no calamity, no affliction, health-wise, no affliction that's going to overcome us without God providing a way of escape. Sometimes God does, even with our health. Sometimes he heals, and sometimes he allows us to finish our course and wait for the resurrection. Years ago, I remember an individual who had been baptized in Worldwide back in the 60s, and had somehow grown weary through, through those latter years, probably the 70s, and overcome by the world. And he left God's church at that time and lived quite a few years in the world doing his own thing, eventually marrying a woman who was not connected to the truth or the church in any way. And when I met him some years later, he was somehow stirred to find God once again, to return to the great God that he knew years ago. And he began to attend church regularly. And he was excited to be back with God's people after so many years. And things went very well in his progress until his wife began to resent his absence on the Sabbath and his commitment and his loyalty to the things he believed in and his allegiance to the value system and to the church. And one day in frustration, his wife told him, I won't play second fiddle to anyone or anything. You're going to have to choose between your church and me. And she just laid it out just like that. And, you know, that's a trial. That doesn't happen often, but occasionally God allows us individuals to be tested that way. I remember sitting down with him and uh, talking it over, and he was, he was confused. Uh, how could he go both roads? And I suggested to him that having 
A very strong marriage is so important to the great God. But no one has their right to come between us and our God. No one has that right. Well, he later explained to me, probably a month or so later, two months later, that his wife had told him that, you know, he was going to have to make a decision. And he told her, he said, you know, he told me that he told her that he loved her and he wanted to stay married to her, but he could not abandon God. In other words, a second time. He couldn't make that mistake a second time. And I thought at the time he showed a great deal of courage. That's being tested when you think about it. And putting God first in his priorities, as Christ instructed, you know, husband, wife, father, mother, brother, sister, your own children, your parents, your own life, meaning your own career or whatever also. And he told me that he had failed God once, leaving God, and he wasn't going to do it a second time. Well, that happens very rarely. It doesn't normally come down to that, but sometimes we're all tested in various ways. And eventually, as it turned out, his wife did leave him and did divorce him, which would have been a, you know, extremely difficult challenge, t- trial to go through. But apparently, years later, God later blessed him with a converted wife who was on the same page. You might say it worked out in the end. A tremendous trial at the time, but God always provides a means, a way, a method of escape so we can come through that trial, not necessarily compromising. A way of escape doesn't mean compromise, but it means standing on the principles that we know is right and the threat of danger and the threat of consequences. As we individually more and more begin losing and we begin to fear losing, that is, the favor of God and his blessings, we begin to focus on the blessings of the great God, you know, it slowly begins to crowd out, replaces the fear of the world and what the world can do to us or our family or our friends or our employer. It takes time. It doesn't happen all at once. We know that. Character grows. It doesn't come all at once at baptism. It's a lifelong struggle and agenda of the great God growing in character slowly but surely. Well, that's one of the strategies of developing courage when we start fearing God, loving God, more than we fear the world and its consequences and the things that could, let's say, affect us, afflict us. We know the great God has things in store for us, far outweigh anything we suffer in this life. Let me move on to a second strategy in building needed courage. And number two is probably the obvious, is to ask God for courage as only he can provide. Sometimes we forget the obvious. Going to God, asking him for courage, admitting that we don't naturally have it. We're facing something difficult. We need courage from him. And we know our God is the great encourager. 
Uh, he's capable of it. He knows exactly how to do it. He can fill us with courage as no one else can. He is the great encourager. Our God and Father, the perfect parent, and Jesus Christ, they know how to encourage us to fill us with courage as no one else, none other. Four times in the Gospel of John, I believe, Jesus referred to the Holy Spirit as the helper or the comforter. John 14, 26 would be one example. Uh, and we can see that that's part of the nature of the great God in, re- in reference to uh, his mind, his character, the Holy Spirit, the spirit and the power and the mind of, of the great God. John 14, 26 but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he, or it, will teach you all things, that is, God himself, and bring to you remembrance all things I said to you. We see there that Greek word parakletos in reference, referring to God's Spirit, is often translated to comfort, to exhort, to encourage, to give courage. Sometimes we need to be given courage, don't we? To give courage. Have you ever asked God for courage? You know, sometimes sometimes it, seem, it seems like there's no way out of whatever the issue is. Have you ever asked God for encouragement? You know, God is more than willing to give it. His, his spirit, his mind, his power, referred to as the comforter. We could say the encourager. So often when we lack doing what is right or having the courage, rather, to do what is right, we fear the consequences or what might happen. What might happen? Notice what we're asking for when we ask God for encouragement. According to Merriam-Webster Dictionary, it's defined this way. The act of making something more appealing or more likely to happen, something that makes someone more determined or hopeful or confident, something that makes someone more likely to do something, end of quote. When we ask God for courage, it is his will, no question. He wants us to be courageous when we face tests, difficulties, in doing what's right no matter what we perceive are the consequences. We don't always necessarily end up paying the consequences, but we perceive it. You know, do not fear, that phrase, do not fear, is one of the most often repeated phrases or concept in the Scripture. I think it is, it is listed close to 80 sometimes in the scripture, do not fear, and often it's coupled with, for I am with you. Okay, in other words, you have a right to have courage. It's almost like an imperative, not a just a nice philosophical, let's say, uh, suggestion. It's, do not fear. Okay, you have the great God on your side, or you're on God's side, and he is capable of seeing you through anything. Now, there's so many examples where God gives encouragement and says, don't fear, I'm with you, trust me. Deuteronomy 31, Deuteronomy 31 and verse 6, 
chapter 31 and verse 6. Of course, this is toward the end of Moses' life. We had Joshua, who was on the scene, inexperienced, but he had been trained by Moses. Deuteronomy 31 and verse 6. And God, who was inspiring Moses, in this case, to speak to the people, like us. In verse 6, a, a change. They had so much confidence in Moses, at least at times they did. So be strong, verse 6, and of good courage, speaking to Israel, the people. And do not fear. Do not fear. Nor be afraid. In other words, trust your God. Either which is it? For the Lord your God, he is the one who goes with you. He will not leave you nor forsake you. God would say that to the people through Moses, to the people of Israel. And oh, that's so true in relation to us. We're being trained. We have his spirit. We're offered eternal life. And Moses called Joshua and said to him in the sight of all Israel. Now this is to, to Joshua in this case, not just the people. Be strong and of good courage. For you must go with this people to the land which the Lord has sworn to their fathers to give them, and you shall cause them to inherit it. And again, that theme of fearing, of not fearing, but having courage is so consistent in so many ways. I think different forms of that is mentioned almost 80 times in the Scripture today, almost an imperative from God. That is, learn to trust God in the face of danger, in spite of the consequences. Fear not. We either trust God or we don't. We learn to trust God fully, and we fear not. At least, we try to get there. It's normal to have fears. It's human to have fears. But we have to slowly move through life, developing that level of confidence and courage through the great God. Isaiah 41.10, one more example. At least one more. Isaiah 41.10. Once again, applying to Israel applies to us even more so. 41.10. Fear not, for I am with you. You know, that, that certainly can be, you know, a reminder for all of us when we face issues. And we see danger. Choices we have to make. Fear not, for I am with you. Yes, I will help you, and I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. In other words, God's not going to violate his principles. He's going to do what's right, and he expects us to do what's right. goes on to say, well, let me read the last part of that. I will strengthen you. Yes, I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. You know, the right hand is symbolic of strength. Most of us are right-handed. So God uses that analogy with my strong, stronger right hand and right, right arm. Let's look at one more, this time from Christ in John. We'll turn to John chapter 16. John chapter 16 and verse 33. Here we go. 1633. These things I have spoken to you, 
and all that he was instructing his disciples, I've spoken to you that you may, that, that in me you may have peace. Now, the word translated peace here, Strong's 2293, is explained this way in Strong's, to be of good courage. To be of good courage. These things I have spoken to you that in me you may have good courage. In the world you will have tribulation. That's a given. We've got tests and trials. But be of good cheer. And I think this specifically, specifically speaking of courage, I have overcome the world. In other words, I can do it. You can do it too. Christ is saying, with my help. You're not alone. I will not leave you or forsake you. Fear not. Be of good courage. In one of the darkest days of King David's life, when he was running from King Saul for his life, as Saul was trying to chase him down, David found himself in exile out of Israel among the Philistines for a time. And one day David and his men was returning from visiting with the Philistines. And they lived in the city of Ziklag at the time. And uh, they saw they had refuge there, a small city as well. And as it turned out, as you may remember the story, when David returned and his men in exile, after a hard three-day ride, they came upon their city where all their children and their wives were, and the city was burned to the ground. Incredible destruction. You know, it was such a discussion, it was such a discouragement. The scripture says they cried, they wept until they could wept no more. And you can imagine the tragedy and the calamity. And to add insult to what had occurred, actually David's men threatened to stone him. They were so upset and discouraged with the loss of their family and their houses burned to the ground, they threatened to stone David on the spot. And, of course, David, let's look at 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel chapter 30 and verse 6, 36. And it says in verse 6, 1 Samuel 30, after all that, happened in his life. It says in verse 6, Now David was greatly distressed, and I can imagine anybody would be, for the people spoke of stoning him. It's kind of like David led them into this tragedy. They were under his authority voluntarily because the soul of all the people were grieved and every man for his sons and daughters. And you might say that was the time for David to throw in the towel. And he had already been anointed king. And so far it got him nowhere after all these years. Now he's approaching, getting close to age 30. But instead of giving up, notice the last part of the verse. But David strengthened himself in the eternal his God. Well, the authorized King James says David encouraged himself in the Lord his God. That word translated, Hebrew word encouraged, Strong's reference 2388, to strengthen, 
to repair, to fortify, to encourage, to fasten, like we're fastened in purpose, intent, to be of good courage. You know, and that huge calamity in David's life says he encouraged himself in the eternal. He turned to God, and of course God is plenty capable of encouraging David and us as well. Incredible example. David didn't panic. David didn't give up on God. He didn't grow bitter. That's kind of humanly, human nature growing bitter. He went to the source of all hope and courage to God himself, and he encouraged himself. You know, even in the worst of times, for, all, for any of us, if whatever we see in the future, in one's even darkest hour, when fear can overwhelm a person, we know there is hope. We know there is the great encourager. We go to the source, we can, the source of courage, God himself. And in a time of even calamity, we can encourage ourselves in the eternal. So when we lack courage, we know what's right when we start fearing the consequences of fully obeying God, maybe for some, for some at times in the past it's been tithing when they don't feel they can afford it. For others it's waiting on God when they're young and single and don't see the right person in the church at that time. We can go to God, we can ask for courage, we do what's right, we do what's right, no matter what we assume the consequences are, that is the consequences of obeying God. And, of course, we know God says he always has a way. He'll see us through one way or another. And while we're thinking of the consequences of fully obeying God in this world that we live in, we need to remind ourselves continually of the third strategy I'm going to bring out. Third strategy we're talking about again in building courage. Number three, in thick and thin, we need to keep the focus on the benefits. I think of it as a benefit package, you know, like with employers. You know, there's a list of benefits. We need to keep the focus on the benefits, or we could say the benefits package of God's way of life. When we're fearful of fully following God, maybe we're tempted to compromise, fearful of obeying God fully in his way of life, we are at the moment assuming, whether we realize it or not, that the consequences of obeying God in Satan's world far outweighs the benefits. That might be a mistaken thought. Far outweighs the benefits, the consequences of obeying God. We may not say that or exactly think that way, but that's our reality. And what the world has to offer, there may be, we know. Passing pleasure of sin for a season, for a short time, Hebrews 11.25. But it's not lasting. It's not lasting. There's always an end. There's always a penalty. There's always potential for despondency, for the sense of failure. How many people worship the God of materialism in society? Assuming that if they just had more money, life would be great. If they just had more money, you know, 
The average American assumes that if they had 50% more income than what they have right now, life would be great. Whatever their income, whether it's 25000 a year or 500000 a year, the average person is dissatisfied if they just had 50% more income, life would be great, they'd be on track. But, of course, those who become wealthy, you know, they, in the end, they end up with empty, broken lives. How many people worship the God of pleasure for years and years and years, and yet so often they die asking, is that all there is? Is that all there is? And how many people worship the God of freedom, assumed freedom, thinking that they're free from moral restraints? They're free to be me, kind of. They can do as they please, and yet they end up suffering the consequences, violating laws, spiritual laws of the great God, the natural penalties that come of violating the spiritual laws of the universe or of the great God that are designed to keep us from fear and loneliness and really despondency as well. The bottom line I think it sounds simplistic, is that God's way works. God's way of life works, at least to the extent that we apply it. It works. It's the path to the mind of God, what we call the fruit of the Spirit, don't we? The mind of God, the fruit of the Spirit. How does he think? How does he live? A beautiful state of mind when we, you know, when we approach it. None of us, are, I suppose, are perfectly there, but as we approach it, a beautiful state of mind. You, you know, we know some of the examples of outgoing love and joy, an element of joy, an element of peace in our life, even though things may not be perfect around us at the moment. But we have an element of peace. We know we're on the right track. We have a future. It may not be fully in this age, in this life, but we have a real future. God has offered us, called us, chosen us. He wants us to remain faithful, to finish the course, to graduate. I think one of the most profound experiments that probably ever existed in seeking worldly pleasure and materialism, obviously we know is found right in the Bible. I've been so thankful that it's there, so people don't have to wonder if they read King Solomon as an example. I think he led probably the greatest experiment in a life filled with every desire, fulfilled that a person could ever have. I'm glad that story is preserved for us. His life started out on the right track, we know. But in time, he was overwhelmed with the ability to fulfill his desires and the resources that he had. Some have calculated that in today's dollars, Solomon probably was the first trillionaire. When you look at his assets and what he had access to. Notice Solomon's life and again, I'll hit a, couple, a few high spots in Ecclesiastes. Thinking about pleasure for a season, Ecclesiastes 2 and verse 1. In verse 1, so Solomon is contemplating here. I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with mirth. I'm going to try to enjoy life here and see if that's uh, fulfilling. Therefore, enjoy pleasure, 
But surely this also is vanity. I tend to think of it as futility, even as much as vanity. You know, it's futile. In the end, it's not lasting. People die. Their accumulation in life, their great empire disperses, goes elsewhere. According to Brown Driver Briggs' lexicon, vanity, or, or at least the Hebrew word translated van- vanity, is this. A noun meaning vapor or breath. In other words, futility. It's not lasting. You can't hang on to it for long. Soon gone. Here today, gone tomorrow. So Solomon was saying, life is fleeting. Heaven by itself, there is nothing lasting. It is true. You can't take it with it. We all know that. But you can take God's character. And that's something like our spiritual genetics. Even though our physical DNA will not last, our spiritual DNA will As James said, for what is your life? It is even a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. James 4.14. And that's kind of par for the course for the world, simply looking at accumulation and pleasure. Verse 2. And I said of laughter, madness. You know, you can laugh yourself silly, but in the end, (laughs) in the end, There has to be something more than temporary laughter, jokes, humor. That's fine. But it doesn't give you anything to to hang your life on. And instead of mirth, what does it accomplish in the end? And I searched in my heart, verse 3, how to gratify my flesh with wine, with guiding my heart with wisdom. And he he wasn't a fall-down drunk. He, He didn't go that route. Uh, he, he began to enjoy the finer things, the better wines, his own vineyards, and obviously his own wineries. He had to have both. And how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the sons of men to do under heaven all the days of their lives. Okay, how are you going to have a fulfilling life? And I made my great works. Indeed, he did. And I built myself houses. You know, one palace for one of his wives, the queen of, uh, a queen of Egypt, Pharaoh's daughter, I guess that's the way it was. One palace just for her, and of course all the other building projects in his own palace. And I, and I made myself, verse 5, gardens, which I always enjoyed. It takes work, but gardens, I, when I think of gardens, I think of, uh, though I haven't been there, I've seen pictures, I think of Versailles. The gardens of France, manicured, you know, and waterworks. And he says orchards, so he had plenty of fruit. He was a horticulturist, I guess. And I planted all kinds of fruit trees in them, and I made myself water pools. You know, it's nice to have the sound of flowing water, kind of peaceful. From which to water the growing trees of the grove. So he had an irrigation system he planned and probably designed And I acquired male and female servants and had servants born in my houses, multi-generational. Yes, I had greater possessions of herds and flocks than all who were in Jerusalem before me, before and after, as it were. And I also gathered for myself silver and gold, the accumulated massive wealth, 
and the special treasures of kings and of the provinces, outlying areas, not just uh, Israel, but he imported great things and acquired male and female singers. You know, he had live music. He didn't have to have CDs or, you know, audio systems. He had three-dimensional music, the delights of the sons of men, and musical instruments of all kinds, not just harps, musical instruments of all kinds. So I became great and excelled more than all who were before me in Jerusalem, and my wisdom, it says here, remained with me. He retained his faculties, and whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. Whatever I want, I got. I did not withhold my heart from any pleasure, for my heart rejoiced in all my labor, and this was my reward from all my labor. Well, Solomon for a while enjoyed his construction, his labor, his design. Solomon had it all, we know. In every way, when you think about it, he had multiple physical relationships in marriage. Maybe he was thinking, well, maybe that's the answer to fulfill the human spirit. He might have thought that, but it didn't turn out that way. But in the end, Solomon began to feel empty. That is apart from God. Apparently, he turned back to God, began to get his bearings straight. Verse 11. He says, and I looked on all the works that my hand had done and on the labor in which I had toiled on all those projects. And indeed, all was futility. It was like vapor here today, gone tomorrow, grasping for the wind. And there was no profit under the sun. And again, apart from the great God, no lasting fulfillment. Verse 15. So I said in my heart. As it happens to the fool, a fool has said in his heart there is no God, agnostics, atheists, and all the rest, evolutionists. I said in my heart, as it happens to the fool, it also happens to me. And why was I then more wise? And then I said in my heart, this also is futility. You know, even in his mind, wisdom can be passing. You don't take it with you, in other words, to the grave. For there is no more remembrance of the wise than the fool forever, since all that now is will be forgotten among humanity in general in the days to come. And how does a wise man die? He says, just like the fool, when you're dead, you're dead. You have no thoughts. And he said, therefore, I hated life. Think about that. Rich, wealthy, materialistic, everything you can imagine. And he was frustrated. I hated life because the work that was done under the sun was distressing to me. And all is futility and grasping for the wind. And then I hated all my labor in which I had toiled under the sun because I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And he's probably thinking, one of my sons are going to mess it up. He's going to get all fouled up. And there it goes. All this effort for nothing. So... Solomon thought about this in frustration and despair, and apparently he came to himself in due time. He came to himself 
maybe towards the end of his life, and realize that the supreme God and his purpose is the answer to life, to real life, to a future. Chapter 12, verse 1, a couple more verses. Chapter 12. And verse 1. So here's some of his conclusion towards the end of his life. He says to all of us, but our youth in particular, he says, Remember now, your creator in the days of your youth. Get started early. Before the difficult days come. Well, you know, the difficult days, you end up uh, as one eventually ages and you have less potential less potential opportunities as the years go by eventually. And the years draw near when you say, I have no pleasure in them. In other words, you're no longer that mobile or, or energetic, etc. While the sun and the light and the moon and stars, they are not darkened. Verse 13. Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. He says, this is my conclusion. Fear God, keep his commandments, for this is man's all, their purpose and reason for living in the first place. A real future with, with the great God, eventually eternal life, part of the family of God, working for starters in the millennium, helping others achieve their potential, you know, showing them another way, helping them succeed, outgoing concern, that's the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God, keep his commandments, a bright future. Well, of course, we know we, we have a better life in the present to the extent we obey God. But God does reveal to us overwhelming blessings in the coming kingdom of God. We, I'm sure we heard about that at the Feast of Tabernacles, our birth into his family, eternal life, working with human beings, and on and on, helping them rebuild their lives, eventually entering the God family, kind of like our own children, though they physically would not be, but monitoring their success over their years, maybe over the generations, generation after generation in the millennium, having that sense of fulfillment, you know, the highest level of fulfillment, seeing others succeed under your guidance, under your direction, you know, just like your own family. Incredible. Well, retaining that vision, of course, of what God has before us, all part of the benefits of God's way of life, is an extremely important way of developing courage in the present to face a very difficult world at the end of the age. You know, it's obviously not a piece of cake. It takes struggle. It takes effort. So we do need to build faith and courage. I think as Dr. Meredith, is kind of his final message to the church, Council of Elder meetings, also his final articles, we need to seek and to build courage for what's ahead of us, courage to obey God rather than man, courage to do what's right no matter what the consequences are. Courage to stand fast and remain faithful and eventually reap the overwhelming blessings in this life, eternal life, that is in the kingdom of God. 
So courage, when you think about it, is not fully the absence of fear, in a sense, we're all, we're all human, but rather being convinced that what God has to offer is far more important, far more worthwhile than what we fear, some of the consequences of obeying God. It will take courage to finish our training in Satan's world. We know that. We understand that. It will take courage in many ways to finish the work of God that God has given us to do. But we know that God will be with us, as he says, in so many places, every step of the way. Fear not. Be courageous. I will be with you. I will hold your right hand. That's all part of our training. That's all part of developing the very character of the great God. So in conclusion, let's take courage. Let's finish our course and reap all the blessings that the great God has to offer, both in this life and forever.